We wish to call your attention for a few moments this morning to the Word of God as it is recorded in the psalm we read, Psalm 149, and particularly to verse 4. For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. In instituting the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, beloved, the Lord Jesus commanded that this supper should be in remembrance of his suffering and death until he come. I take it that that means that this is the commandment which he has given to the church <clears throat> to be kept by her until he will come again upon the clouds of heaven to receive us unto himself and to bring us into the everlasting communion. However, though this is true, that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is intended to be a remembrance feast, we are not to conclude by this that that is all that it is. You understand, of course, that not only this sacrament, the Lord's Supper, but also baptism, along with the preaching of the Word, is intended to be the means of grace. And that must certainly mean something to us, especially in the preaching of the gospel. God purposes to realize in us, by his spirit and word, the salvation which Christ has wrought. And it is the intention of him in the sacraments, both of the Lord's Supper and of holy baptism, to confirm that faith. And so the sacraments, also this sacrament, is intended of God through his spirit and grace to strengthen us in our faith. Now I assure you that's more than to be just simply a feast of remembrance. God works through the sacrament to confirm in us the grace which he has wrought in our hearts and which is based upon the sacrifice of Christ our Redeemer. In other words, we're not Swinglian in our conception of the Lord's Supper. If you are at all acquainted with the history of doctrine and the development of doctrine, you will know that it was the contention of Swingley, one of the reformers, that it is only a, the Lord's Supper is only a remembrance feast that is intended when it is celebrated to call to our remembrance what God in Christ has wrought for us. I say we are not Swinglian, but we are Calvinistic in our conception of the Lord's Supper. That does not mean, however, that 
this sacrament is not also intended, and as I expressed it, uh, by the Lord Jesus to also be a remembrance feast. Do this, remember uh, him in his suffering and death until he comes. And you understand, of course, the implication of that is, because I call this a remembrance feast, that we do this with thanksgiving with praise, praise to God and to Christ for what he has wrought for us through his suffering and death. And this idea, I think, is most beautifully expressed in the passage of Scripture which we have chosen to speak on this morning in connection with our celebration of this sacrament. You'll notice that the psalm that we read begins with, Praise ye the Lord. In fact, the very last words of the same psalm are, Praise ye the Lord. So the intention of this psalm, whoever wrote it, we don't know, is that Israel, God's people, the church, is called to praise the Lord. And this is plain from the second verse of the psalm. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. And a little later you have uh, expressed here, saints, let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. The whole psalm is toned, as it were, to praise and thanksgiving. And notably, in the text which we would call to your attention this morning, you have really expressed the reason for this. Why this must be done. Uh, I think that is suggested in that little word for that introduces our text. For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Here is expressed the reason or the ground for the praise and the thanksgiving that must be lifted up unto God, Jehovah, the God of Israel. And I think it is well that we keep this in mind also when we celebrate this sacrament of the Lord's Supper because certainly implied in the broken bread and the poured out wine, symbols of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, that we have in that the truth that God would uh, beautify his saints with salvation. And therefore, it is evident that he takes pleasure in them. Because he takes pleasure in them, he will beautify the meek with salvation. I call your attention to a notable reason for thanksgiving. 
And there are two thoughts that I would like to develop very briefly. First of all, of course, we have what I would like to call a twofold reason. I call it a notable reason, but that reason is really twofold. And our text divides up beautifully to express this twofold reason. Not only is it so that the Lord taketh pleasure in his people, but he also will beautify the meek with salvation. And then briefly, we would also call your attention to the fact that this is a thanks-inciting reason. This must arouse in us the thanksgiving and praise which is due unto Jehovah for that which he has wrought. First of all, then, I call your attention to twofold reason. And the first aspect of that reason is expressed in the first part of the text For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. I think it is noteworthy to call attention to the fact that that people of which our text speaks is a very peculiar people. The word that is used here in the original text signifies uh, a unity that is collected. A people that has been called together to be one. That's the idea of people in the text. And I would add as you find this term throughout the Old Testament and possibly also in the New. God's people are the people that are spoken of here in this text are a people who have been collected. Uh, Isaiah in Isaiah 43 verse 21 uses the term formed. This people have I formed for myself. And you understand that back of that expression is the Almighty God who is calling and forming and bringing together, collecting and bringing into one body a certain people. We'll see in a moment the people in whom he has a very special delight, but that's the idea of people. They are a people that is gathered uh, out of all nations, tribes, and tongues. Heterogeneous by nature. But made to be one. And that unity, of course, becomes manifest. I'll call your attention to that a little more extendedly this evening, the Lord willing. But that unity becomes evident in many, many respects. First of all, they are one in life. They have one life, one spiritual heavenly life that courses through their spiritual veins. Uh, they have one faith. 
Not all kinds of faiths. We mustn't have that silly idea that is so evident and prevalent today that uh, so long as you have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, then you're okay, you know. Everybody has faith. Maybe you're not all strictly Calvinistic faith. Maybe you're Arminianistic faith. But if you have faith, well, that's, that's okay. That's it. Well, I want to call your attention to that that's not the truth. That's a lie. The truth is that the faith of the children of God is one. And it doesn't make any difference where those children come from. Whether they come out of the blacks or the yellows or the browns or the whites. That's peculiar. With whomever you speak, who has been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light, and in whose heart faith has been implanted, the peculiar thing is that that faith is one. And the fruit of it is that this people serves one God, one Christ, and they have one baptism. They are one. That's the idea of people. And notice too, beloved, how they are described in the text. He will beautify the meek with salvation. I already called to your attention that in this psalm they are also called Israel. Our men's society has had their attention called to the significance of this name, name that was given to Jacob at the Jabbok when he wrestled with the angel, you remember? Thy name shall no longer be called Jacob, heel holder or supplanter as he is sometimes called, but Israel, uh, prince of God. A victorious people. That's the idea of the term. Israel. Saints. Saints are they that have been sanctified by God. Separated from the world. Consecrated unto God and his service. But in the text you have meek. I purposely read a portion of Matthew's gospel this morning with you. Uh, in which various characteristics are given of this people. And I call your attention to them. These are spiritual characteristics, of course. But they describe this one people. Uh, they are the poor in spirit. They are they that mourn. You understand the idea is that not because of the loss of dear ones, but mourn because of their sins, shortcomings. Blessed are the meek. Here you have meekness again. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. You understand the Lord in all of these beatitudes is describing this one people. This is characteristic of them. All of these spiritual virtues, pure in heart, merciful, peacemakers, all of that 
describes this people. But in the text, you have peculiarly the one virtue that is mentioned, uh, meekness. And that must certainly mean this, beloved, if it means anything at all, that this people is characteristically low in mind. They don't think much of themselves. They have learned to depreciate themselves. Their proud and sinful natures have been crushed into the dust. You understand? Because they have been confronted with the holiness and the righteousness and the law of the living God. God has humbled them. They are therefore no longer vindictive, self-exalting. And this is of great significance here also in this text. When God forms a people, the very first thing and the last thing that he does with that people is humble them, crush their old, sinful, proud natures. He crushes them into the dust. Meekness is that spiritual grace in which they recognize that they are nothing in themselves. But all that they are is of sovereign grace and mercy. In them, the Lord takes pleasure. And again, the term Lord, as you may have guessed, is Jehovah. Their covenant God, who has had intentions from everlasting to establish with them a covenant friendship relation. He's not simply the Lord, the Almighty God, though he is, but he has had special intentions with his people. And because he has had this, and because he has wrought in them this grace of meekness, along with all the other virtues that we mentioned, he has a certain pleasure in that. I could put that very bluntly, and we have done this before, of course. I could say to you this morning, beloved, God loves you. That's all you want to hear, isn't it? Oh, he doesn't love everybody. But he loves his people. He loves his peculiar people whom he has formed for himself, for his praise, and in whom he has wrought with his sovereign grace and mercy to make them the meek of the earth. He has a certain pleasure in them, a delight. And I think it is most difficult to describe this emotional 
counsel of God. That's what it is. You can talk about God's ordination. You can talk about his counsel. And this, of course, uh, signifies God's eternal purpose too, but in a hard, dogmatic way. The word good pleasure is the emotional expression of this same truth. God is not simply a hard God who determines this and determines that and then incidentally also determines a certain people. Oh no! He has gone about this to form this people with a certain personal and spiritual delight. He delights in his people. He taketh pleasure in his people. Now you understand, that cannot possibly be because of anything that is in that people. This is what we have to see here. It is not because we are a people who is distinct from all the peoples of the world and therefore better than all the peoples of the world. Not for that reason has God found delight in us because by nature there is no difference between us and all of the peoples of the world. We are likewise with them, corrupt and undone and unworthy. We are depraved and lost and evil in ourselves. And this is what you keep on rediscovering when you examine yourselves, how much of that evil and that corruption is still in us. Isn't that right? That's what you found if you examined yourself this week faithfully. There's no good in you. There's nothing that makes you to be worthy of any special attention of God. You are just as well as all the ungodly reprobates that shall go to hell as worthy to be destroyed forever as they. But this good pleasure is not only an emotional experience of God with respect to his people, but it is that which he sees in that people which is divine, which has been wrought in them. And here, of course, is fundamentally the grace of meekness. That's what God delights in. He delights in his people because that people has been made to reflect his own sovereign grace and mercy. He rejoices in that people because he sees in them his own work of grace. And in that he rejoices. And of course you can't separate the two. God's grace and his people, again, are one. Just as that people is one. But I must hasten. The second part of this reason is he designs to beautify them, to beautify the meek with salvation. The purpose of his good pleasure is not only to deliver us from our sin and misery and guilt, 
but to glorify us. Oh, it is true that when he saves us, he delivers us from the greatest possible misery. But that's only half the story. You understand, if God would simply bring us back from our corruption and death and let us stand there with no more, we would still be lost. He must bring us to glory. He must finish the work of salvation. Complete the work of grace in us. And as you have heard so many times that it hardly needs to be repeated, grace is fundamentally beauty. God purposes when he gives us his grace to beautify us as he is beautiful. And this constitutes also the positive and final purpose of our salvation. It's not merely to deliver us from hell, wonderful as that may be, or to bring us to heaven. Not only to deliver us from our ugly and corrupt and depraved natures, but to make us beautiful as he is beautiful. That's his purpose. To adorn his people with salvation. That's the idea of the text. And this is a promise, of course. I think we may understand our text that way. For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Uh, this is God's word spoken through the psalmist in the form of a promise. He promises to do that already in this life. Let me remind you of that story of the prodigal son. You remember, he had everything, and he went out away from his father, and he lost all. At last he is found sitting in the pigsty, desirous to eat what the pigs ate. And he came to himself, and he went to his father. And what did his father do? to him. Did he just simply say, my son, I'm so glad that you came home and that you're sorry that for what you did? No. He said to his servants, you take his dirty, stinking clothes off and give him a good bath, and you put on him princely robes and put a gold finger ring on his finger, and let us have feasting and joy, for this my son was lost and is found. He didn't simply deliver that son from his awful sinful plight, but he beautified him. That's what God does. That's what he does to us now in this life. I want to say something to you this morning. God's people are beautiful. 
if you have eyes to see it. They are the beautiful of the earth. They have been adorned with many graces. And you can't cover those up. They must be revealed. But you know, that work of adornment isn't finished. There is still so much that is ugly. And that's the thing that brings us to tears so often. I'm sure you can't go on your way rejoicing You say, well, I'm saved, I'm glorified, I'm perfect, I have been completely delivered. You can't say that yet. We can say that only in principle. And therefore it is still true that there is still in that beautiful people of God so much that is ugly, and sometimes that ugliness comes out so blatantly that it hurts. When you see this also in the congregation, evil tongues, evil works, hatred instead of love, Malice, deceit, all of these corruptions we still see, uh, they crop up. They crop up not only in the life of the child of God, but also in the congregation of Jesus Christ. And this brings the church of Christ often to tears. We're not perfect yet. We're not always so beautiful. But we will be in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, when all of the work of his salvation shall be finished, then God will beautify the meek with salvation. He will adorn them with all the graces of salvation so that they shall perfectly reflect his saving grace which is in them. Praise ye the Lord. That's what we have to think about this morning. All of this uh, adornment and all of this good pleasure of God and his people is basically expressed here in the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, through the suffering and death of Christ, is perfecting his people, adorning them with his grace. And this is why this is a feast of remembrance, of praise and of thanksgiving. I think that idea is, as I expressed in my introductory remarks, the intention of the entire psalm. In fact, the psalm begins with, praise ye the Lord, and it ends with it, indicating that it is the intention of the Word of God here that the people of God shall lift up praise and thanksgiving and unto God.
And this is what you will and I should express here this morning. This is motivated in our text for this reason. Because the Lord taketh pleasure in his people, and because it is his purpose to beautify the meek with salvation. Praise the Lord! Lift up thankful hearts. And you understand, that's not only limited to a certain hour that we spend here in God's house, about this table, but this is true throughout your whole life. Our whole life should be expression of thanksgiving and our praise in gratitude unto God for this deliverance. That's what our Heidelberg Catechism teaches. Not only has he made known unto us our depravity, not only has he made known unto us our deliverance, but our only comfort in life and in death is found also in the fact that he has given unto us true gratitude for that deliverance, which is expressed in our whole life, in our whole walk. So that my whole life is really a song of praise and thanksgiving unto God. And particularly, this will be also true when we are gathered as we are this morning and reminded through the broken bread and the poured out wine of Jehovah's mercies over us. May God sanctify that word to our hearts. Amen.